You're listening to Televisionary, the podcast about the shows that shaped us. In this episode, we take you through the history, key moments, and lasting impact of American Horror Story, with a few detours along the way. Was, quote, a total butt fest. I heard footsteps, and I think that maybe talking about this is getting to me. One of the patients at the titular asylum. Welcome to Televisionary, the podcast where we discuss the shows that shaped us. I'm Cody Hoffman. I am Elena Hillard. And today we are going to be talking about everyone's favorite horror anthology series, American Horror Story. Boom, 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 boom. Okay. That's probably enough of that. Uh, yeah, for real. <laughs> but I hope you enjoyed it. The opening credits of the show have often for me been the scariest part of the show (laughs) that's so true (laughs) i don't know another show where like the part of the show that like has the most effect is (laughs) the the opening (laughs) sequence um that's not true of every season maybe but yeah um, the 80s one is just like weird yeah that was my least favorite for sure both the season and the opening sequence but anyway this isn't about which season was my least favorite it's about the impact of the show overall, which this show, I don't think people quite realize just how influential American Horror Story has been. I think it gets lost in the shuffle, overlooked a lot for the ways that it has really impacted television especially, but the, maybe the broader culture as well. I mean, maybe it's just because there are so many anthology series out there now or miniseries that it's hard to remember that before American Horror Story, the only miniseries that were out there were like weird historical dramas about like Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> At least for a long time, like growing up, I remember those categories in the Emmys being just so unrelatable (laughs) they were like sparse too it was like so easy to land a nomination for supporting actor in a miniseries because there were just not a lot and the quality was not great (laughs) but that really all changed well maybe not all changed but has changed a great deal because of american horror story in part have you watched all of the seasons i have watched all of the nine seasons that have aired as of this podcast recording. I've watched a couple of them more than once, but all of them at least one time. I watched in real time the first, I think, four seasons. I definitely know that I saw one, two, and three multiple times. And then I watched some of five and six, but then I kind of got away from it. And... I'm actually really glad that we decided to do this show because I've actually enjoyed kind of revisiting. I watched the pilot episode of season one and then I watched all of season seven and I just started season nine, which is kind of letting me down. Okay, let's get into a little abbreviated history of the show or AHS. 
Oh my god. So <laughs> American Horror Story creators Ryan Murphy and Brad Falchuk. Is yeah, that- I think that's how you say it. Uh, They began working on American Horror Story before production began on their show Glee in 2009. And once that show got in its groove, they started planning more earnestly for American Horror Story. Yeah, and even from the very beginning, they knew that they wanted the show to be an anthology with completely different characters and setting and storylines in every season. But this format was not revealed to the public until after the first season had finished airing uh, until it was a couple of months over i think that they revealed that season two was going to be something completely different so the show premiered on fx on october 5th 2011 and has so far aired nine seasons and the 10th is set to premiere sometime in 2021 in addition to that the show has been renewed for three more seasons, which would bring it to a total of 13 seasons, which now that I'm looking at that on paper, I bet that will be the final season because 13 is unlucky. That would make sense. And also, I think most people are in agreement that the show is past its prime enough that (laughs) it can't justifiably run for another 10 years. So it's not that it's necessarily bad. It's still better than some other horror shows, I think. But yeah, I think... 13 feels like the correct number to end on. We'll see if that ends up happening. But on to the last bit of history of the show, or more so the future of not even this show, but a different show, (laughs) because there's a (laughs) (laughs) spinoff. They are producing a spinoff called American Horror Stories, plural, which is a bad name. Let's just be honest. Why? can't there be more of a distinction there but anyway it will be an episodic anthology with self-contained stories in each episode a la twilight zone or black mirror or something like that and that is set to premiere in 2021 on fx on hulu so we normally would go through some like touch points throughout the show's run where there are important things that happened either in the storylines or in, you know, production behind the scenes stuff or whatever that is interesting to point out. American Horror Story is kind of a hard show to do that with because every season is different and it's not like the content of the show is really what's driving the impact, I would say. It's more... I would agree. The, the production side of things that has had the most influence, in our opinion, anyway. So we're just kind of going to jump right into the impact stuff, because that's what's more interesting to talk about. There's a lot of it, actually. <laughs> yeah, I think first and foremost, the biggest impact that the show had is in starting what we might call the anthology revolution in TV. That's my term. Other people may have used it, but everyone feel free to go ahead and start using the term Anthology Revolution. Send me a check for $25 every time you do. (laughs) Before American Horror Story, there were not many anthology shows, especially seasonal anthologies, if any. I, I tried to do some research into other anthologies that existed before, and all that I found were mostly episodic anthologies that really were pretty common in like the 50s and 60s in the early days of television. You had shows like Alfred Hitchcock Presents and Twilight Zone, which I mentioned Mm -hmm. mentioned earlier, and every episode was just, you know, a totally different story. But there were not that I can find in my research any 
shows that had self-contained stories season to season and were still, you know, branded under the same show name. But since American Horror Story premiered, there have been tons of other shows that have followed that lead. Examples of that are True Detective, Fargo, Homecoming, American Crime, and the also unfortunately named American Crime Story, because American (laughs) Crime premiered first. The Sinner is also another one. Mm -hmm. With the success of all these anthologies, there's also been a resurgence of regular miniseries, too, which are now typically rebranded as limited series. It's so much more legitimate. You know, we had commented earlier that it was kind of very easy to win awards for those kinds of things, and there were just not a lot of them. It's really interesting how in just a decade, that model for television production has really totally changed. Yeah, I mean, I think it's been... I see it as being mostly a very positive thing because I think we see a lot of the limited series and anthology series are sort of the leaders in TV right now, at least in Mm -hmm. my opinion. Some of the highest quality content being put out right now is in like an anthology format. And I think it's because networks can more easily take a risk with a series that they know Max is going to be on the air one season. Like if mm-hmm. it totally fails, if it totally flops, if it's way too out there, they don't have to do another series. It can just live and die beginning to end as one thing. So I think that that is very freeing. I think that's why we see so many of these series being as successful as they are and as interesting to watch. I would say the downside for me though is that some of these series like Big Little Lies or True Detective even, they have one really perfectly crafted season become very successful and then they get other seasons that are nowhere near the level of quality as their initial season and Mm -hmm. even I would throw in there The Great which was a Hulu series I really enjoyed I think it could have lived as a single season am I happy to watch more yeah but I am skeptical of what it's going to do and where it's going to go from here yeah I agree with that it seems like the network's just all have generally realized that if you slap the anthology or limited series label on something at the beginning, there is somehow less risk involved, (laughs) because if it ends up being really bad, you can say, oh, it was only intended to be one season. And if it ends up being wildly successful, then you're all of a sudden scrambling to produce more and try to capitalize on that. And generally, that does not work. (laughs) You know, most of the shows that have done that were not able to recapture whatever magic they had in that first self-contained season, probably because the story was only meant to exist as that tightly scripted set of six, eight episodes, whatever. Big Little Lies, I think, is the biggest offender of that, probably. Like, the second season absolutely did not need to exist. No. But they were just like, we are going for it, Meryl Streep. We are, you know, throwing out the rule book about what the show actually was in the first season and trying to create something that vaguely resembles it, but they just failed. One of the problems I had in researching this American Horror Story episode, not to make this all about me, but I felt like I kept getting so hung up on researching the impact of the show versus researching its place in the horror genre. I don't know why, but my brain just kept going there. And one thing I did think of in regard to anthologies is that anthologies and horror have always kind of gone hand in hand. I mean, even like Edgar Allan Poe published his short stories in anthology, 
like as you know an anthology and there's so many like comic books that came out in the 50s that were anthology series so for me that this was the first sort of foray into that format feels really right because there is just a little bit of a historical component there to like horror being segmented and serialized almost yeah i think that's a good point because with something like a sitcom you have the ability to run with the same characters in the same setting for 15 years in some cases because everyone knows how those characters will react in a certain situation you know it's so predictable i guess and with a horror story you can't keep having the same (laughs) things happen to people before it just gets depressing basically yeah and like literally people have to die right (laughs) like no one's (laughs) life is just a continuous series of horrible graphic murders or you know ghosts call constantly appearing and you know moving things around their house like that's not the way real life works and sure a sitcom maybe isn't exactly the way real life works either but (laughs) 10 year long horror story you know if you're filming 400 episodes of horrible things happening to the same people over and over again (laughs) no one is ever going to watch that so i mean maybe maybe some sadistic people would but in general at I think that's why horror and the anthology format go so well together. It just works from a story point so much better. Yeah, and honestly, one of the reasons why I'm so nervous to watch the new Handmaid's Tale episode is because that show is now in season four, I think. And it feels like you get these... It is kind of like a horror story that's now been... (laughs) dragged on for so long and you get these brief moments of like happiness but it is tough to watch and that's like the the best comparison I can make to like a horror story that really has gone on with the same characters over a period of time yeah the show also led the charge really in opening up the gates for quote-unquote movie stars to dip their toes into the pool of television. I wouldn't say that American Horror Story has had any huge current stars, other than maybe Lady Gaga, who was not really known as a a film star at the time. She later went on to be nominated for an Oscar. Stars like Jessica Lange and Kathy Bates and Angela Bassett, who were once, you know, very successful in movies and, you know, still had great careers going in film, kind of embraced that move and have since coming to American Horror Story worked a lot more in TV than in movies. And then other than on American Horror Story, you had these huge film stars like Matthew McConaughey and Nicole Kidman and Reese Witherspoon and Julia Roberts who have started dabbling in TV more, especially with limited series, because of the kind of shorter commitment to, you know, only doing a an eight episode season or whatever, and still getting a similar payday to what they would get on a movie. Another thing that I noticed when I was reviewing for the show is just the sheer number of diverse characters that the show showcases. You have characters with disabilities, racial and sexual diversity. And while this is kind of a Ryan Murphy thing, I think most of his projects have this to some degree. I think that LGBTQ characters are really prominently featured in American Horror Story. And I think that that's very interesting. Yeah, I think so too. Um, (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) I I wasn't sure if you had more to say after that. Yeah, I definitely think so too. 
I don't think that the show gets enough credit for that because it doesn't make a big deal about the diversity. Like some shows are kind of like all in your face with like, look at how many colors of people we have. And like, look at how many, you know, different things we're doing. And I don't think that American Horror Story is like that as much. It, you know, there is such a diverse cast in, you know, pretty much every season, but it's not like it ever feels like tokenism. That's one thing that I think they walked that line very deftly in just kind of showcasing the world as it is. And that is weirdly revolutionary (laughs) for a show like this because so much of the horror genre over the years has been white people, you know, white straight people, honestly. And it's nice to see a project that kind of does away with that and doesn't care about what the perceptions of the horror genre have always been. Yeah, I think... Before American Horror Story, if you were to go see a horror movie and there was a black character in it, it is not unreasonable for you to go into that movie, see the minority character and say, that's going to be the first person who is killed in this movie because Mm -hmm. that was a real thing that happened. And I mean, as far back as like Nosferatu, (laughs) queerness or being gay or whatever you want to call it, like that was almost always seen as a villainous thing Mm -hmm. and these especially in vampire movies and vampire shows there's always like a little bit of like homoeroticism there (laughs) and those are the villains and Mm -hmm. in american horror story you can be gay and be the hero and that is such a big deal and i think since american horror story there has been a bigger shift in horror overall to at least broaden the scope a little bit. I think the horror movies that are coming out now, I mean, look at like Get Out, like such Mm -hmm. a progressive movie. Could it have been made without American Horror Story coming first? Maybe, but I definitely think American Horror Story opened the door for movies like that to be made, whether people realize it or not. Yeah, I think one thing about horror, like I said, it has been historically a white man's game, <laughs> you know, not always man necessarily, but white people have always been the heroes. Going back as far as you see in horror, that's just the way it has always gone. And by taking away that idea that a white person, a straight person, will be the last one left, will be the one who ends up saving the day and coming through in the end, I think the show just does so much to destroy certain stigmas and stereotypes that exist not just on camera but off camera too. I think it enables actors who never could have foreseen themselves as the hero of a horror story to, you know, casting agents can see them differently now, you know? Yeah. You know, just the way that it has transformed that idea of people who fall into categories of otherness as being not as valuable maybe, either in a story sense or in the writing of the story itself or marketing of the story, the production of the story. The show is so revolutionary in that way. Yeah, I think going back to what you said about on screen, off screen, you know, casting agents seeing actors differently. One thing the show did that is super rare is cast homosexual 
actors to play heterosexual roles. I think that that happened multiple times throughout the series, and I don't think the average person realizes how rare that has been over the course of time. And that's why so many actors for so long, probably still today, many of them feel uncertain about being open about who they are off screen, because it does start to affect the roles that they are given a chance to play. Yeah, I just saw an article recently where Kate Winslet was quoted as saying she knows personally at least four actors who identify as either gay or bisexual who, like, prominent big-name actors, she says, who have not come out because they are afraid that they will not be given the same kinds of roles that they have now, which is so sad in today's world that that could even be a concern for anyone anymore. But there are still those stigmas that exist of a gay person can't conceivably, quote, play straight. And that's, you know, it is changing. There has been a lot of progress made in part because of American Horror Story. But it's just, it's crazy that that kind of thinking still pervades to this day. Yeah, absolutely. That was always my Clooney theory whenever he was single for so long, was that Hmm. he he just pretended to date all these women because he didn't want to come out, which I guess could still be true. He could have married someone, but, you know, I mean, I don't don't know. They they seem pretty in love. Yeah, I would say so. One more point that I wanted to make is I think one of the quietly revolutionary things that American Horror Story has done is kind of played on the fears that exist in a lot of pockets of American culture of people who are not straight and white being considered normal, being considered worthy of presentation on screen. There are still, unfortunately, a lot of people in America and, you know, probably around the world who are honestly afraid of gay people being considered people, (laughs) of black people being considered people. And it's not like American Horror Story is intentionally saying, we're going to throw it in those people's faces that gay people exist, that people of color exist. But it's kind of what they have done. They, It is a horror story, and the horror story for some people is seeing representation on screen. You know? Yeah. I, I find that it's kind of really interesting. That's a layer to the show that most people wouldn't consider. And I honestly, you know, it had never really occurred to me until I dug down into researching this episode. And I just thought that's kind of brilliant that (laughs) you are creating a horror story that for most people is a great celebration of seeing more of what the human race actually looks like on screen. And for other people, you're creating their personal horror story of a world that is not whitewashed, of a world that is not exactly what they want it to be and think that it should be. Yeah, I think that's a really good point and not really something I had even thought about in preparation to this, but you're right. And I think titling the show so simply kind of plays into that fact for me. I mean, maybe I'm like really micro analyzing it right now, but American horror story, what is the American horror for a lot of people? And it's exactly what you just said. So that's very interesting. I'll be interested to see what the spinoff is going to be like, the American horror stories. I think Mm -hmm. honestly, in an episodic format like that, you could push the boundary even more. And it could be very interesting to see what they end up featuring. Yeah, I am excited for that as well. I have a feeling that it will not be quite the same style 
as American Horror Story, just because, like, episode by episode, there's so much more that you can kind of play with and different ideas that you can try to incorporate. I would be interested to see if they do more of, like, a, a comedy episode or something here or there. I don't know. We'll see. Absolutely. Moving on to... <laughs> I kind of want to make you take this next point, but I, I have because <laughs> I, I, I love the way. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. So I remember, I think it was during season two of the show. I was talking to a friend who had not seen any of it yet and kind of describing what it was. And since it was only the second season, like at that point, I was like, oh, it's a different series, you know, different story and everything this season than it was the first season. But like, in describing it, I found that the best way to say what the show was, was, quote, a total butt fest. Um, <laughs> because there's a lot of butts in it. There are a lot of butts. <laughs> Several seasons of the show feature a notable amount of nudity and profanity for a basic cable show. I would dare say that such a degree of vulgarity had mostly been reserved for premium cable up until that point but it really seems like american horror story was it's instrumental in the relaxing of certain fcc standards for cable and even for broadcast television for example the f-bomb is now allowed to be dropped occasionally on fx a basic cable channel and in later seasons of american horror story say it too and also brief glimpses of butts have been shown on this is us even a broadcast network show i don't know if that's just a result of our culture in general becoming more desensitized to that kind of thing and that you know we realize we don't live in the worlds that 1950s television tried to portray for us <laughs> that you know sometimes people are naked sometimes people swear but it does feel like american horror story moved that ball forward to use a sports metaphor <laughs> in a way that most shows had not before i use sports metaphors a lot you know because i'm a, a big sports fan. big fanatic yeah, yeah. <laughs> You just like sports in general, not not any specific sport. <laughs> I would general say that sportsmen. Yeah, American Horror Story's use of nudity and profanity has been a home run. <laughs> I would say, <laughs> oh my god, I think American Horror Story is just a part of it. I think that FX overall, because uh, that's where Always Sunny in Philadelphia is, and that's another show that I view as really pushing the boundary. I mean, it's on FXX now, but it used to be on FX. Mm -hmm. But I think FX as a network is just such a genre pusher. It's such a boundary pusher. I think their programming in general, they're always kind of towing that line of like what is or isn't appropriate to show on TV, which is why I appreciate them so much. And if I ever created a TV series, I would probably want it to be on FX. Same. <laughs> but I think that this is... An interesting point that you bring up because it's not something that I immediately thought of with American Horror Story. And maybe that's because I've primarily streamed the show recently. So I just don't I, I just wasn't even thinking about it, which I guess plays to the point of is anybody really thinking about it anymore? <laughs> I mean, in our Oprah Winfrey episode, we talked a little bit about FCC and how they Howard Stern cracked down and like tried to crack down on Oprah and get her in trouble and that was not that long ago relative mm -hmm. to when this show came out but like things have changed so much kids are on their phones 
constantly from basically the time they're born. I mean, that's an exaggeration, but... <laughs> not by much with, anymore, honestly. Not by much. <laughs> I mean, I see kids all the time on cell phones and it's terrifying, but <laughs> I mean, how much can we really control? And I don't know. I mean, personally, I just think censorship is completely ridiculous. I think as someone who watched the Rocky Horror Picture Show in fourth grade and turned out like fine... And honestly, the movie probably awakened my mind to, like, LGBT people because <laughs> we grew up in a very small town. So, like, mm-hmm. seeing something like that was, like, very pivotal. It was a really good thing. I just don't think – I don't think that there is any reason why we should be censoring things as much, especially with language. I mean, come on. Like, kids hear worse at home from their parents most of the time mm-hmm. than is allowed to be said on, like, CBS. It's It doesn't make any sense for the time that we're living in. I don't know. I just, I think it's kind of crazy. Yeah. I actually tried to do some research into the FCC standards for what is permitted on which types of you know, television services. But I really couldn't find any of their rules. Like, it does not seem like there are a strict set of standards for broadcast television versus basic cable versus premium cable. The only thing that I found was that a rule that says, quote, factors in determining how FCC rules apply include the specific nature of the content, the time of day it was broadcast, and the context in which the broadcast took place. Broadcasting obscene content is prohibited by law at all times of the day. But how do you define obscene content? Indecent and profane content are prohibited on broadcast TV and radio between 6 a.m. and 10 p.m. when there is a reasonable risk that children may be in the audience. End quote. I threw the part about what it... <laughs> what do you determine is obscene content in there that was not part of the quote but anyway like that's the point i think the old quote from the supreme court justice about profanity or obscenity was i know it when i see it right and it's like okay but some people consider butts to be obscene and some people don't so are you going to censor all butts just because some people get their knickers up their own butt crack which they also possess about it (laughs) Like, all people have butts. Like, that's just a thing. And we don't need to pretend that we don't have butts just because some people don't want to see them. Well, and the bigger thing for me is that I just remember I took German for like six years. And we talked a lot about how in Germany, what they rank as being like more obscene or like a higher movie rating would be something that's ultra violent. But in Mm -hmm. the U.S., it's almost always ranked higher for sex and there's so much violence everywhere all the time and you know i mean obviously we've there have been studies done that show you know violent video games and violent films they don't actually make people more violent that's not what i'm trying to say but the way we especially as americans view sex as still being so taboo like it's still i feel like we're still so puritanical about this which i guess that's what our country was sort of founded on you know hundreds of years ago but like times have changed and i think being more open about that would be a net positive for society (laughs) but also like horror and sex not to take it too far from the fcc thing but horror and sex especially it's always been so connected and i think it's because both are 
such fringe things in our society. Like horror movies have always been a little bit more in the outskirts of what's accepted as like quality content. And I think there's just something so visceral about both sex and horror. They go hand in hand. So maybe that's why that genre has been a little bit more open with sexuality than other drama or other categories, other genres. But yeah, I don't know. I think overall the FCC standards either need to be more specific or need to be totally relaxed. And I, I think it is important to note the the rules state that anything between 6 a.m. and 10 p.m. cannot be indecent or profane. But American Horror Story only airs on FX after 10 p.m. So its standards are more lax. However, judging by the lack of availability of the FCC rules, I assume that there aren't real rules or if there are that they aren't released to the public which why not if it's a federal agency or you know commission right but like what is deemed acceptable content is probably just at the discretion of individual censors based on how many complaints they have gotten about similar content and with so many fewer people watching linear tv especially children then the censorship rules whatever they might be are like put in place to protect children and if they're not at risk of accidentally seeing a butt on TV, then why does that censorship need to continue? It feels really weird too, because like, what's the purpose? Just to protect? Or is there some other business like payoff to censoring things? Like, I wouldn't think that there would be any connection there. No, it doesn't seem like broadcast networks have an edge over streaming networks as far as like family programming or anything, you know, like there are so many family oriented shows on all of the streaming networks now that don't have those mandates, you know, from the government for what they are and aren't allowed to show. But the broadcast networks have to still try to appeal to everyone. Like that's their whole business model is trying to garner the largest audience possible. So their willingness to take those risks of showing something that might offend a large contingent of people, it's going to be less. They're not going to be as eager to kind of push those boundaries. So that I think is a business standpoint that the broadcast networks don't want to push too far but at the same time if people are expecting to see more titillating content (laughs) elsewhere then they're probably going to shy away from the broadcast networks if they're not finding anything that's appealing to them there if they only want to watch gratuitous sex and violence and hear the s word or the (laughs) f word a gd (laughs) If they're just in search of a GD, then a broadcast network is not a place to find it. I don't know. I... This is all kind of strayed pretty far from American Horror Story, but I think it's an interesting conversation to have. It's weird to think that there is such a censorship problem in our society today because the average person just does not care. Let's just stop censoring each other. We're not China. (laughs) I mean... (laughs) (laughs) We're definitely not China. So on top of expanding the horror genre on TV, expanding the anthology format on TV, I think that American Horror Story has also expanded what I like to think of as puzzle TV. Again, you can pay me $25 anytime (laughs) anyone uses the term puzzle TV. You've really coined a lot of terms today. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm just a, a televisionary when it comes to coining phrases about television (laughs) 
Anyway, puzzle TV is what I think of as shows that are exceptionally complex, that have these very intricate storylines that are not revealed for the most part up front to the audience. You get bits and pieces, certain clues of things maybe. For example, in season one of American Horror Story, the rules, I guess, for the ghosts in the murder house were sort of slowly revealed throughout the season. But at first, you don't really know who is a ghost. You don't know why the character of Moira is showing up as a young woman to some people and an old woman to some people. And, you know, there are so many things that you just don't know at first, but are put in place to capture your attention and to intrigue you, and you are meant as a viewer to kind of put those puzzle pieces together as you go. It's, you know, sort of meant to be a fun game, (laughs) but it's if you don't do it right, it is not a fun game. And there are lots of shows, lots of shows have tried to do it and not succeeded. And if you don't do it well, then you risk angering and alienating your viewers. Westworld. (coughs) But, um, sorry. Something in your throat. Uh, Yeah, yeah, it was, it's just been stuck there since the season one finale of that show. But anyway, (laughs) if... If the show does it well, then the rewards as a viewer can be huge. You know, you get so invested in trying to figure things out. And I came up with the example of Orphan Black for this show, which is not a show without its flaws. But I think it did a good job of giving you questions that you could think about and ruminate over as a viewer, but still feeling like it was very intentional. Like they were thoughtfully going somewhere with the story and not just throwing a bunch of crap at you and saying, here's all the pieces they might fit together later on. That idea of approaching a show had not really been done to the extent that American Horror Story did it. And I just wonder, is the risk of constructing a really elaborate puzzle for your show worth it? Or are you better off to just kind of follow a straight narrative format and, you know not force viewers to try to do so much work. I think this connects back to what we were saying earlier about anthology series in general being a better place to experiment and push boundaries a lot of the time. And I think that that's why Puzzle TV or, you know, having complex storylines, whatever you want to call it, for American Horror Story, yeah, it's been used to varying degrees of, of success, but the show can recover when it does not succeed. Whereas shows like Westworld or Lost, which I think is a big one that did Mm -hmm. the, they threw everything out there and then it was nebulous as to whether it resolved or not. But those shows are not restricted to one season. It's so much TV and Mm -hmm. you throw too much out there. It's very hard to reel it back in. Another show that I always hear people saying did this very well is The Leftovers, where that show, I think the first season is very different than the latter two seasons, but in the latter two seasons, they very much resolve things in a very nice way. I don't know if it's necessarily Puzzle TV, because I have not watched all of it, but... Yeah, I think if you're going to do a puzzle-type show like this, it does need to have a pretty finite timeline just in case it does go off the rails right and then you also have audiences who are more connected than ever your if your audience can put together a better more logical ending to your show than you did 
you're going to be in big trouble. And I think we've Mm -hmm. seen that happen time and time again in recent memory. I mean, I think even to some degree, that's what happened with Game of Thrones. I read better Mm -hmm. fan theories than the final series of that show. So yeah, I think the key is always to just know where you are going (laughs) with your story. And that's something that American Horror Story, I think, has overall done well. Some seasons certainly better than others, but at least they have the advantage of dropping everything about the season at the end of it and just starting over completely with a clean slate. The dropping of every season is actually something I want to talk about a little bit more. I meant to bring this up when we were talking about anthologies earlier because I think there's so much that American Horror Story did with marketing, with almost like a gimmick kind of setup. And... What I mean by that is, you know, I think the way that they make each season unique and the way that they tease you with an image or a name of what the theme is going to be, it's all very cool and it feels very organic, but it is obviously a very calculated move on their part to get people excited about the show. And it's like what I said earlier about the ratings. It clearly works because the first episode of each season always has so many more viewers than the rest of the season. So clearly they're hooking people in to some degree. But I don't know. I I wanted to talk about this a little bit more because I think it is interesting. I think it is calculated. And I would personally consider it to be a gimmick of sorts, which, again, taking it to a place of like horror history has always been a historically kind of horror thing. I think we've Mm -hmm. seen movies, you know, especially in probably from the 50s through the 70s, a lot of movies that were in the horror genre did all sorts of crazy things to entice people to come to the theaters. There was like a flying skeleton in theaters for House on Haunted Hill. There was, I think, a movie called like The Tangler or something like that, where the seats like shook and it felt like something was touching your butt. So like, (laughs) and beyond that, even in the 70s, there was a movie that used like a split screen effect. So American Horror Story, to me, feels like they're doing this sort of gimmick thing to get viewers to watch, but in a very sleek, modern, marketed way. Uh, That might be, I hope that I explained that in a good way. No, I think you did. And also, I just want to to throw out something that I just remembered reading about Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho, which was in the marketing for that, they explicitly said no late admissions to the theater. Like no one will be admitted after the movie has started because they wanted to make people think, oh, like what is happening in that movie that I need to be there from the very first minute? Mm -hmm. You know, like that kind of tactic has always been in place in the horror genre and just this very specific way that American Horror Story was marketed in its first season I think follows very much in that lineage you had very little idea of what the show was actually going to be based on the marketing like a lot of the promo images were just a guy in a rubber suit and a pregnant woman on the ground in this red room you know like you don't know what any of that is about and once you watch the season you see how those things tie in and all of the shows all of the seasons promotional materials really have kind of followed that same sort of pattern other than season six they tried a different tactic where they didn't reveal 
anything at all about the season beforehand. Like, there were just no clues about the title or the theme or anything of what it was going to be. That model was not used for subsequent seasons, and the ratings weren't really goosed, it seemed, by doing it that way, so it, you know, that one didn't maybe have as much effect as the other ways that they've tried to market the show. But also, for the first season, they didn't even reveal that it was an anthology until after it had finished airing. You know, they didn't show what the show actually was until after the first season. So it's, it is that kind of ultimate bait, you know, trying to hook you in by saying this is going to be what we want you to think the show is going to be this, and it's actually going to turn out to be something else. The old bait and switch. I wish more shows and movies did stuff like this, actually, because I think as things become so competitive, which they already are with the sheer volume of content out there, doing anything to kind of entice people to watch or or get people like into it seems like a smart idea. And I tried thinking of other examples of this. And one thing that I think is a gimmick in my mind is shooting things completely on an iPhone. So like Tangerine did that and Unsane, the movie was all shot on an iPhone. So I think like that to a certain degree is a gimmick. I think you also especially with reality TV, maybe sometimes certain concepts can be really gimmicky, like that Love is Blind Netflix show is kind of just as a concept feels like a gimmick. But you don't really see other shows doing this, at least nothing I could think of. Yeah, one thing that American Horror Story does that does feel particularly gimmicky to me is incorporating elements of previous seasons into future seasons. Oh, yeah. The first time they did it was in season four. Uh, In the first episode of that season, a character from season two, Pepper, one of the residents, I guess, patients at the titular asylum, which is not an asylum with big breasts. It means that asylum was the title (laughs) of the season. Anyway, just in case anyone wasn't clear on that. Anyway, Pepper showed up at the freak show, the titular freak show of season four. And (laughs) I just like using that word. I don't know why. That was the first time that there was any overlap between the seasons. And it started this Easter egg hunt, maybe, of, you know, for fans of the show to find those times when there was something from a previous season that got recalled. You know, it's something that very few shows would be able to do in the first place, but it does feel very much in line with what we have come to expect from the horror genre in film. Overall, it feels fitting for a show like this to do that kind of stuff. I would say that before American Horror Story premiered in 2011, there wasn't really a contemporary show that had defined itself as a horror show. So what the show did for anthology shows, I think it also did for horror shows. There had been things in the past, you know, way back when, The Twilight Zone, and more recently, Tales from the Crypt, X-Files, Buffy, Are You Afraid of the Dark? These are things that kind of touched on horror, but it was not really until American Horror Story that someone had really come out and done horror balls to the wall. (laughs) I think it was a little taboo. And now I feel like we're seeing a resurgence of the horror genre. I think we're seeing more of it on TV. I think there have been more like of these horror anthology shows that have tried to follow in American Horror Stories footsteps for sure. Shows like Dark and Lore and Monsterland. Most of them, I have, well, I have not watched any of the ones that I just mentioned, but those are ones that I have seen marketed uh, very much in the 
same way that American Horror Story was. It's just interesting to me that people are trying to recapture whatever it was that American Horror Story tapped into. Like, just a decade ago, there was virtually zero horror presence on television. And now it's, you know, it became this viable thing. You know, it was clear that there is a place for it on television. Yeah, I think for me, there is a weird mm, correlation between American Horror Story, this sort of horror renaissance, I think, that is happening not only just, like, with American Horror Story, but I also think, like, the horror genre, from a film perspective, has really shifted over the past few years. I think we've seen some of the best horror movies ever made coming out in the past 10 years. Films like Hereditary, Midsommar, Midsommar, (laughs) Get Out, things that really pushed the boundaries so we're seeing this sort of horror renaissance but we're also seeing at the same time like the prominence of true crime which Mm -hmm. is a separate thing but feels very connected in a way because it is horror it's just realistic horror it's real life horror and even american horror story i think does a very good job of blending elements of real life true crime into the show so i've really gone off topic here we're talking about horror on tv but it it is interesting to see all of this kind of coming to the forefront and also it's no longer taboo to say that you like those things. I think now, if you say you're into horror movies, people think that's cool. I think when, like, our parents were kids, if you said that, you would have been a weirdo. And the same goes for true crime. Like, every woman ever, especially, is into true crime, and it's cool to say that. We're definitely seeing more of this in our culture. I don't know if it's all because of American Horror Story, but I do think American Horror Story was sort of the beginning of us really seeing horror be a high quality genre and something that you could show on TV and still have it be engaging for viewers. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, you said that you were getting off topic by straying from the idea of horror on television. But I don't think that you are, because it still comes back to, you know, horror being in every home if you want it. All you have to do is turn on the TV, and you can find those horror shows where before it was not as accessible. You know, you did have to make the choice to go to the movie theater, or you did have to go and rent or buy the movie. And television, I think, is that one place where it's easiest for a genre or a certain style or what have you to make a huge societal impact, to have that cultural impact, because it's more passive in a way that people can just turn on the TV, try something out. If they like it, then they'll keep watching it. If they don't, then they won't watch it anymore. Whereas with a movie, it is more of a conscious decision to say, I like horror, and I'm going to go see this horror movie in the theater. At home, you can say, I don't like horror, but what is this weird new show that FX is putting out? It's called American Horror Story. Am I going to like that? I'm going to watch the first 10 minutes. Okay, I've watched the first 10 minutes. I'm intrigued. I'm going to keep watching. And then all of a sudden, you turn into a horror fan, because it's broadened the definition of what horror is, for one thing, but it's also put it in front of your face in a way that you haven't seen before, in a way that you never thought of horror. Yeah, and I think Another part of that could be length. And I think that that was maybe sort of what you're getting at with like, oh, it's in your home. You can like give it a try. But I think for a lot of people sitting down to watch a two hour slasher film, if you're 
not really into the horror genre already, that's too much for a lot of people. But American mm -hmm. Horror Story is presented in a shorter format. And I think there's a lot of variation from episode to episode. I mean, sometimes you're seeing somebody get a nail gun to the head, but sometimes like you're getting a lot more like Leslie Grossman being funny. And so mm -hmm. I think it's a perfect foray for people into the genre. And sorry, at one point while you were talking, I took my headphones out because I heard footsteps. And I think that maybe talking about this is getting to me. <laughs> there is probably an axe murderer standing outside the closet where you are currently recording this. <laughs> oh my God. That is, I mean, that's kind of funny though, because you do expose yourself to all of these horror stories and you tell yourself, oh, it's just TV, it's not real, and you still hear that bump in the night, you still hear what you think are footsteps, and you go, it's real, they're coming for me, <laughs> you know? It, uh, there, there is something, uh, I don't want to say cathartic, because that's definitely not the right word, but it's, uh, I don't know, th there's a weird thing that our brains do where we almost want it to be true that something horrible is going yeah. to happen to us because we have seen it so much in horror, you know, in various forms of media. But anyway, I hope that it's not actually an axe murderer there. <laughs> I hope so too. But that really, that brings me to what I thought would be a good ending question, but I don't know if we're at the end yet, but I'm just going to bring it up now and then we can go mm -hmm. from there, which is that is watching horror healthy? And what kind of prompted this question is that I feel like we're living in a world now where so many horrific things are happening in real life. We have mass shootings, we have pandemics, we've really got it all. And before, those things would have been just present in horror movies, but now they're present in our everyday lives. And I think as those real life events have increased in at least our awareness of them, we've also seen this resurgence of horror as a genre. We've seen the genre really pushing the boundaries. There's been a lot of horror movies that are really good that have come out recently, but I also think there's a lot of horror movies that have come out within the past 10 to 15 years that have been disgustingly horrifying, like Human Centipede or a Serbian film, which I've never seen, but I hear is like the most gory, disgusting horror movie ever made. Do we think that American Horror Story is a net positive? Do we think horror in general is a net positive or is it a negative? Like, I think that you're onto something when you say that it can be very cathartic. And I think that I generally feel the same way, especially with more realistic true crime based stories. I think especially as a woman, it feels very good to watch these very bad things happen because it gives you an idea of what you may do if you're ever in that scenario. It feels like you are mentally almost going through it and it maybe makes it more manageable to think about, but it also makes you think, no, if I'm in that scenario, I'm gonna fight like hell and I'm gonna get out, even though you probably would just die as well. But there's something that feels good about watching it. And I think personally that it is more positive than it is negative to have horror all around us. It makes these real life events seem less awful because they are awful. But I don't know. I'm rambling now. But how do you how do you feel? So I definitely understand your take on it, but I'm not sure that I agree. Well, it's not that I don't agree. It's just that I don't understand why horror is 
so widely embraced in a world that is horrific enough as it is <laughs> because it seems like with all of these horrendous things that are thrown in our faces every day on the news on social media whatever that we should want an escape from stuff that is not you know that we don't want to be seeing that you know breaks our hearts and that is just horrible to think about we should want to run in the opposite direction we should want other happy nice things <laughs> to watch <laughs> as an escape from all of that and it just like thinking about it it almost makes me feel like people are watching horror because that's what they know. It's like the world has so conditioned us for horrible things to happen all of the time that are outside of our control that we go and watch a horror television show, movie, read a horror book, whatever, because we understand it. It's, you know, it vaguely reminds us of other things that we are already familiar with. It feels strangely comforting to have those same kinds of stories playing out in, you know, the fictional sense that are so much like the ones that we have in the real sense. I don't understand why that might be the case. I am not a psychologist. <laughs> I can't get to the root of why people, you know... And that's almost like the same thing. Maybe this is a leap too far, but like people who, you know, continually have abusive relationships or something that keep, you know, looking for the same qualities in a person that to their detriment that, you know, had a horrific impact on them previously, but that's all that they know. That's what they keep going back to. It's just unfortunate in a way, but also people have the right to choose whatever content they want to view. There are enough happy, bright things out there that if people want to watch them instead of the dark, graphic, gory stuff, they can do that. And I can say that I'm generally not a fan of very dark, violent, horror-y shows for the most part. American Horror Story is really the only show of that genre that I watch, and I appreciate it more usually from a storytelling element. You know, there's always a bigger theme, there's always a broader context that the storylines can play into, which I think is what's captivating about it for me because it's kind of expanded that genre of what horror is. It's a befuddling phenomenon to, to me that horror has exploded in the way that it has in the last decade because we are living in you know pretty horrific times to be perfectly honest i think maybe what appeals if we're going with your theory to people is that yeah we're experiencing all of these horrible things irl but we can watch a two-hour horror movie that has a resolution mm. and our horrors in real life seemingly will have no end until our final end which is maybe the greatest horror of all wow <laughs> wow <laughs> wow Deep. you went there that's a, i mean that's a, a valid point though i think there is something weirdly soothing about seeing a horror story on television or in a movie and everything in that world has ceased to exist you, you can put it away and there is something comforting in knowing that even if things were not good, it was going to be all right. And we don't know what the ending of our real-life horror stories are going to be, so we don't have that comfort. It is nice to imagine a world, I guess, where the horrific things that happen do have some resolution, because we just don't always see that in our own world. And as you say, our final ending might come at a 
a, a time that we don't expect it. We might be faced with terrible situations, you know, that don't have that same resolution. That's terrifying for some people. The, the idea that it could happen when you least expect it. There are so many deep psychological layers to why people might enjoy horror, I guess, but it is kind of fascinating to me that it has grown in such popularity uh, over the years, but in a way it weirdly makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. But anyway, on that note, I guess we should probably go so we don't talk for like three hours. It's only been two. <laughs> Who knows how long <laughs> the actual episode is, but yeah, we've been talking for two hours. Yeah. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed listening to it, regardless of how long the episode is. Agreed. Uh, as always, if you have any feedback or s- show suggestions or just, you know, feel like reaching out, you can contact us on Instagram at Televisionary Podcast. Yeah, if you just need a friend, we're here for you. And uh, something I've never said before, but, you know, whatever streaming platform you're listening to this on, go ahead and rate us. Give us five stars. <laughs> Write yes, a review. Please. Tell a friend. I, I, tell all your friends. Share on all of your social media platforms. Mm-hmm. Show us how big a fan you really are. <laughs> but don't and do anything you... crazy. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe, maybe don't do that. But um, if you are a friend of ours, a, someone that we know personally, show us how good a friend you really are. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you all for listening. I've been Elena Hillard. And I have been, still am, and will continue to be Cody Hoffman. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Televisionary. If you like what you heard, share this episode with a friend. You can follow us on Instagram at Televisionary Podcast, and don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen. Bye!